I always say learning, and I should speak to learning generally, is about building mental models in your head. And the, uh, the more diverse the set of mental models in your head, the more diversely you can think. And I think education is not about what you learn. It's about the mental models you form in your head and how you think about them. Hello world, it's Siraj, and on this episode of my podcast, I have a conversation with the legendary Silicon Valley icon, Vinod Khosla. He started a company called Sun Microsystems, which grew to over 36,000 employees and invented so much software, including the Java programming language. Vinod amassed over a billion dollars in wealth, and for the past 30 years, he's been using it to invest in entrepreneurs building impactful technology companies. He's one of the most influential people on the planet. His investments have given birth to a host of technologies that improve the quality of life for humans everywhere. So with that said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vinod Kosla. Vinod, you are an absolute Silicon Valley legend. You founded Sun Microsystems. You have been investing for over 30 years into technology companies. You've amassed a, over a billion dollars in wealth, and you're using so much of that to help empower other humans through a wide range of technologies, and that's super inspiring for me. So it is my honor to meet you. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. It's great to be here. I would only say... Uh, at least half of what I've done is because I got lucky. And people should remember, I tell entrepreneurs, they should hang on long enough to give luck a chance to work in their favor. I like that, I gotta remember that one. Hang on long enough to give luck a chance to be in my favor. Yeah, that's something that I need to remember. There's a great example. I met, so just this morning, I met with a company called Ori, and they've struggled for a year, not able to get financing, wondering what to do. And then they got a large financing done by Sidewalk Labs because they've ran into the right people. And they just hung on by their nails. Uh, as a great example, now it's a really ambitious plan to reinvent how space is used with robotic furniture and really exciting possibilities. That's super cool. And that's that company is one of the companies in your portfolio, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's super cool. It's, it's rare to see space investments in a portfolio, but uh, that's super cool. One of those areas that you've invested in is education. I know that uh, your wife as well, Niru, she runs CK12, which is mm -hmm. trying to make open, or which is making open source textbooks to lower the cost of education in America and outside of the U.S. as well. Um, in a world where AI is continuing to automate so much, how do you think that's going to play into the future of education? What do you think the future of education? Well, is? I have a very specific dream in education. So my wife runs CK12, which started at open source educational content for 6th to 12th grade STEM education. So fairly precisely design, uh, defined. Now they have millions of users, both teachers and students who come to their site, use their content, and do the exercises. Uh, if I were to look at, there's probably three to 5,000 concepts in high school STEM education that a student has to learn over six or seven years, sixth through 12th grade. Um, they have things categorized along those lines. They have, so a few thousand concepts, a few hundred thousand questions to test students on those concepts, uh, probably five ways to describe each concept. So it could be a text description like you'd find in a textbook. It could be a video of a teacher teaching it. It could be a simulation. I call these modalities. Mm -hmm. So we have all this. And then we have hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of questions to test people on this content, and then hundreds of millions of answers to those questions. Um, my dream next would be to build an AI tutor which can be a personal tutor to every student on the planet, no matter where they are. 
and that learns exactly what the student understands, what concepts they're missing, where they need to do more work, and become personalized at the level of a teach of which a teacher couldn't do if they were dedicated to one student only because they can figure out so much. That'd be the perfect thing we could do for education in the world. And then the teacher's role becomes one of not teaching or lecturing, which is a very archaic concept, but mentoring and coaching and motivating. And teachers can spend their time doing what only humans can do well and let the AI do their teaching. Yes. That'd be exciting. That'd be so exciting. And I'd love to do this as a nonprofit because uh, everybody in the world should have it for free. Every student in the world should have it for free. For sure. That, that's exactly what I've been thinking about the past few weeks. I mean, the reason I started my YouTube channel was to try to just disrupt education by rapping and doing whatever is not games. If you want to work there, it, we are funding nonprofit education for this reason because I didn't want a conflict with trying to make money at it. Yeah. Well, I'd love to. I, I have a nonprofit. It's nowhere near as... Yeah, um, but my point is, it's an ambitious problem, and we have the student flow and the teacher flow, and we have hundreds of millions of answers to questions, so you can actually figure out where students are strong or weak. That's pretty stunning amount of data. Yeah, it always comes back to the data. Um, yeah, so, um, and I was thinking about this idea of personalization for AI and, and, and how we go to these websites nowadays, like Coursera, these wonderful websites, and these are static courses. They're, yeah. they're not personalized at all. What I was envisioning was like the quizzes, all of these resources themselves are personalized. And this might seem blasphemous to some, but what if you could choose your avatar? So Joe Rogan or some yeah. celebrity teaches you quantum biology. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's a great use for deep fakes. Yes. If you know the deep fake world in AI, if you got your favorite teacher to teach you, uh, that'd be great. Uh, I was... Uh, uh, talk, uh, I was talking to a particular Hollywood actress, and she said what she really wants to do is read children's books and have every children's book available in her voice. And, and the student could also pick who they want to teach them. Uh, that'd be exciting. That'd be super exciting. I, I think it's now possible. No one's built it yet. Yeah, absolutely possible. And complete customization. Uh, and that's why I want an AI tutor for every student. Yes. Yeah. So, guys, I might take a year off of YouTube just to build this. Um, just FYI. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so, uh, that's super cool. Um, yeah. So, um, do, do, do you take time to um, take online courses? I'm just curious. Like these. I do from time to time when I want to learn a narrow subject. Yeah. Uh, but my subjects I'm most interested in I tend to be pretty esoterics in this hard to find subjects. So I just have to piece together. Yeah. Like I was just looking at, has anybody built a mathematical model of the hum human immune system? I actually found a textbook on it, but no online course on it. So I got the textbook and I'm, it's on my stack to go read. Just because I got curious because immunology in the human body is a math concept. It's a complex, dynamic, nonlinear, dynamical system. It's not biology. So, uh, learning about those kinds of things, uh, I wish there was a course on that. Absolutely. I feel like that could be automated, like extracting the knowledge from that and turning it into a yeah. video of Joe Rogan yeah. teaching that or whatever it is, um, which is a super exciting uh, system to think about building, what that would entail, because it's AI on every end. Everything mm -hmm. is AI. Mm -hmm. um, which is exciting. Um, but speaking about learning, I know that you are a voracious learner. You love to uh, learn things. And you read a lot as well, right? Yes. W what is one of the most impactful books that you have ever read? Uh, I don't know if I could define one book. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's If I had to go back, because the impact comes very early, probably something from Richard Feynman. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> you know, he had the ability to reduce a complex topic uh, into something like seven easy pieces. You sort of suddenly understand that none of this is complex. The concepts are the powerful pieces, and they're relatively simple. Yeah, you know, so... Um, a recent book, Scale, is beautiful in how it 
evaluates concepts. It's by Jeffrey West. When I took a sabbatical from venture capital instead of going to a beach, I actually became a postdoc at the Santa Fe Institute. And that was really fun for three months uh, to go do that. Um, and Scale is by Jeffrey West, who's from the Santa Fe Institute. But you look at Factfulness by Hans Roslang, or there's so many other books. But I'd say, the, if I look at the last decade or so, uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck is a really important book. I, I would have so many books to yeah. add to the stack. They're all very different. I'm going to link to every book you mentioned in the description. People are going to read it. Yeah. Um, uh, those are beautiful, beautiful books. Perfect. Nice. But seven easy pieces, everybody should. It, it's very motivating to know you can take really reduce things to that level of simplicity, which uh, Richard Feynman was just awesome at. Yes. I find that to be a common trait amongst the most, most successful people that I talk to. They always look at the world from this physics-based fundamental. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I, I always say learning, and I should speak to learning generally, is about building mental models in your head. And the, uh, the more diverse the set of mental models in your head, the more diversely you can think. And I think education is not about what you learn. It's about the mental models you form in your head and how you think about them. And, and they can be mental models about English literature. I read a beautiful book. Uh, it was written in, I think, in the 90, early 1900s, like before 1920s, or, uh, called uh, The 36 Plots in English Literature. So this guy, I think his name was George Poulter, read it a long time ago, uh, took all of fiction till then and said there's only really 36 fundamental plots. These are models of English literature. This is about creative writing, which you'd think as can't be reduced to models. But if you think that way, almost everything is, whether you look at psychology or psychiatry or math or AI, it's all about mental models. And I really keep trying to increase mental models. It's a really good frame to view the learning okay. process. So if you ask me a different question, which is what should students learn? Mm. Trying to cover something that I get asked all the time. I describe this concept of building mental models. So when my son was doing computer science at Stanford, I said, try and take neuroscience too, because it's a different approach to the same subject. Computer science is a language and a profession, but much more important, it's a way of thinking. How precise you have to be in thinking. Now, neuroscience is almost the same thing in a very different frame and you learn a different set of things in neuroscience than you do in computer science. But to me, computer science, neuroscience, philosophical logic teach exactly the same mental models. Hmm. And, and, and I find it really intriguing. And I wrote an essay a while ago on that I got a lot of flack for, that I still defend. It was basically about why liberal, uh, liberal edu education fails us. Hmm. It was like, these are the kinds of things that uh, uh, liberal education should be about. If you're not doing professional education, so if you're not doing engineering and you're not doing computer science or you're not doing architecture or medicine, all professional education, then what you should be learning is a diversity of mental models and learning how to learn. So I actually say liberal arts, which has become this crappy little course now that's generally not useful, and I'll get a lot of flack for that. Mm. And that's okay. Uh, I relabeled it in this particular blog saying it should be called modern thinking. So if you're not getting an education to be a, 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 for a profession, then you should be learning how to learn and learning about all the ways you can think about the modern world. These are the mental models. I agree. We never learned how to learn in high school. Or Humanism is a mental model in my head, right? And you start to appreciate these things. And that's not how education is done. 
So that's what I'd advise anybody to do for future education. And, you know, I get asked this when people are going into college all the time. And they immediately are focused on one narrow thing. And I say, go multidisciplinary, as multidisciplinary as you can, because in 20 years, in the world of dominant AI and all that, you don't know what's going to be important, but you will have to learn how to think. That is true. You know, that kind of reminds me of uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book. Did you read this book, Sapiens? Yes, I think it's one of the most influential books. Uh, uh, I, I love that book and his follow-on 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Both beautiful books. You could tell he also thinks very deeply about this. Stuff. Yes, he has the ability to think clearly about this. And I sometimes wonder if that has to do with his two hours of meditation practice daily, which I strive to get to. I'm not really there yet at all. Mm-hmm. 30 minutes max for me. But it clarifies your brain and lets you think clearly. That's true. Do you meditate? or? I don't. I do versions of meditation, uh, but I did when I was younger. Gotcha. My son does all the time now. Oh, nice. The one who went to Stanford? Yes. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, speaking of meditation, which is a subset of, I guess you could say, aspects of Indian culture, um, hmm. uh, we're both Indian American. Um, although I'm like a fake, you know, ABCD. I was born. You were actually. You're actually. I was born here. You were actually born in, in, Indian. in Delhi. I sometimes I try to keep up with Indian culture, maybe through movies or music. I, I was just curious. Do you do, you do anything to um, anything like Indian? Oh, I do. I, I so first, I'm not religious. I actually think in the modern world, religion is the curse of mankind. My favorite quote is, all these, all this hate, all for the love of God. Mm-hmm. It's like so apropos. Almost every war the last thousand years has been because of religion. Uh, every current crisis is rooted in this. Um, it's, I think it's sort of become a real curse and it prevents the enhancement of humans. Um, having said that, I'm really, really big on traditions. Mm-hmm. So Fiddler on the Roof is my favorite movie because it's so rooted in the idea of tradition. We do Diwali every year. Nice. We do Rocky every year. Oh, uh, nice. I, I sort of, I, every weekend I'm still dressed in my kurta. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, every weekend. That's what I wear. And just at home? Just at, uh, at just at home, or if I have to go out, I'll sometimes wear kurtas too. But so I very much think the real value in first understanding disparate cultures, you start to extract the mental models of our, how societies behave what is cultural about very different societies. And I do think culture is very, very important. And so you start to sort of say, what does culture mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And people who don't really think broadly, for example, people talk about, uh, many people I talk about, talk about culture in one way, and then they'll look at hip hop and say, that's not culture, it is. It's just for a different generation than today's 75-year-old, yeah. right? So you have to be able to abstract these things. And, and so uh, back to your question, yes, I do try and stay in touch. I stay in touch with the politics, and um, I don't work there a lot because I don't like doing business the way it's done in India. Yeah. But uh, I, I do, I'm pretty proud of, the Indian tradition and what we learned, what we learned to value when we were kids. And I love the traditions. I think the family orientation is probably something in the West would be really, really valuable if more people adapted it. Mm, you know, no Indian parent would say their kids should move out when they're 18 and 19. It's just unimaginable to me, right? It just... Uh, 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 so there's so many cultural values, the support system you have about them. So there is a lot to be learned about Indian culture, about family, about support, about community. So nice. By the way, uh, you know, talking about books, you had asked me earlier. A really good book recently is called The Third Pillar. Mm-hmm. Written by Raghu Rajaram, uh, the economist of Chicago, who is head of the Central Bank in India, mm-hmm. it argues that 
in addition to politics and business, which play large roles, community has to play a large role in business now. And he, he calls that the third pillar. And I do think it's a very important concept. We can't leave community behind in business, which intersects mostly in the past, intersected with politics and lawmaking and all that. So another really important book, The Third Pillar. I definitely need to read that like right after this. That's exactly what... Because it speaks to what are today the symptoms of technology. It speaks to the need for the role for community. Yes, and open source and all that kind of thing is involved with community. That's a great point. I, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, as a... I don't even know what I would call myself, a solopreneur, you know, like what even is a YouTube channel? Is it a a startup? I don't know what it is. It's just like education for the hell of it. Um, But I, but I, I do have, I haven't built a company. I built a community. Mm -hmm. Now, as I transition, I'm 28. Now I'm ready to like go hardcore into the startup. Finally, Um, it's, that's a perfect book for me to read. So the third pillar, definitely I'll I'll check that out. Um, But speaking about, so interesting that Diwali, by the way, I definitely want to come by at some point if, if, if that happens. I bet you do it really big here in the South Bay. But um, what does a day in your life look like in general? Because I know you work really hard, but you also have four kids. You have a wife. You know, mm-hmm. You've got a social life as well. So uh, I, I'm way overscheduled. I, uh, I would say my calendar is booked out weeks in advance. I have certain periods during the week carved out for specific tasks. So Friday morning, I have an allocation of three hours for a set of things uh, I need to do, uh, some research topics I'm interested in, uh, that kind of thing. Um, So first, I almost never meet with investors. I almost never meet with LPs or worry about investing. Most of my time, is spent with entrepreneurs because that's what I enjoy. I also love giving them honest advice as opposed to the advice that'll make them like me. And I think too much of the venture community wants to be liked, not do give the best possible advice for the entrepreneur. Mm. And often that's hard. Right, Because if they're doing something right, you can emphasize it, but they're already doing it right. If they're not doing something right, then you really want to bring it and talk to them seriously about it. And that's the hardest thing to talk to entrepreneurs about and the thing they least want to hear. Except two years later, they always appreciate it. Yes. In retrospect, uh, they always appreciate when they got the right advice, whether they followed it or not. Um, So my day is pretty much 100% scheduled. And then my evenings, I try and catch up email and spend it with the family. uh, And weekends, I do a lot of family. I do a lot of hiking. So I do most of my audiobooks uh, hiking or when I'm exercising first thing in the morning. That's my day. Nice. I am very fully scheduled. <laughs> yeah. I, Unfortunately. I, I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true, but you block 15 minutes of your time. Like your time is in 15 minute chunks. Yes. All right. So I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to have four of those. Um, so interesting. Okay. So it's like that. I, I don't know. Have you also seen, um, there's this YouTuber, Evan Carmichael, who made a video about you. Um, it's like 10 things that Vinod Kosla does. And one of them, number five, I think was, uh, he's brutally honest. Yes. You know, this, this uh, religion for me gets me in a lot of trouble. But I think brutal honesty is way more valuable, especially to entrepreneurs, than hypocritical politeness. That's what I was really saying. Yeah. Absolutely. And I will do this for any entrepreneur, even if it means they won't l- like me temporarily. Mostly, years later, they always appreciate it. Yeah, I can see... I can see why, and um, yeah, because it helps them. It helps them, uh, and you can see that in your portfolio and the successful companies you've invested in, um, in your own success. And speaking of your own success, so going back to Sun and going back to all of the software and the hardware that you guys built that 
literally change the industry for the better by orders of magnitude. One of those software protocols that I found particularly interesting is NFS. Um, as somebody who's worked on distributed systems for a couple of years, I even wrote a book about it a while ago, um, NFS was like uh, one of the key players early on that mm -hmm. a lot of other future systems were inspired by. So um, my question is, um, what, you know, NFS, for those of you who don't know, helped with distributed file storage, you know, mm -hmm. across a cluster of machines. What do you see as the future of file storage in general? Well, first, let me speak to NFS. Yeah. Because it really was the first commercial thing that was open source, as far as I can tell. BSD or Berkeley Unix was open source by Bill Joy, but it wasn't a commercial thing that was open source. In fact, people found it ridiculous that we take the jewels of Sun, the thing that only Sun had, NFS, distributed file system, and we'd open source it. And people had real trouble getting a handle on this notion that we'd open source really important idea. And, and Sun I'm really proud of because Sun started open, so not only open source, but also distributed systems, right? Uh, that was a pretty important trend. And in computing, there's only been two or three important trends. Distributed was a big thing, um, and PC was a small subset of it, but distributed systems was an architectural change in computing. And then really, maybe TCPIP, which Sun also started, first commercial company to really start pushing systems with TCPIP standard in everything. And then Juniper took scale TCPIP, and Pradeep and I helped start that company. Um, um, and we can come back to that if you like. But then VMware did a large contribution to computing, and then Amazon did with cloud. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, none of those significant events in computing came from an established player. Think about it. That's true. One of my religious beliefs is no large company can ever innovate in large chunks, period. And in 40 years, I couldn't find one innovation. Space innovation didn't come from Boeing or Lockheed or Airbus, came from Elon Musk. That's right. Cars didn't come from GM or Volkswagen, electric cars. Innovation in electric cars came from Tesla. Innovation in driverless cars came from Waymo. Mm -hmm. Media didn't happen from NBC or CBS or Fox. It came from Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. So almost pharmaceutical companies didn't do biotechnology. Genentech did when it was a startup here in the Valley. So uh, you can't, I couldn't think of one large innovation in 40 years that came. The closest, you know, some people may say uh, financial instruments like CDOs or things the finance and industry innovated in, but they were really hacks to con people out of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they weren't really socially beneficial large innovations, though many people will disagree with me. Uh, but it, it is odd, and this is why your audience and this audience and the audience I cater to, entrepreneurs, they're my customers, is so important to society. Yes. I'd refer everybody to this video I did about what our founders are doing. I call, I call it our awesome video because I was shocked at how large an impact just the entrepreneurs in our portfolio are doing this video is worth, I look at it and I'm like so amazed at what these guys are doing. That's the one we were talking about where you're showing your portfolio? Yeah. Guys, you gotta check this video out. I'm gonna put it in the description, watch it. It's just 100 companies, 15 seconds each, 25 minutes total. It just blew my mind from building hamburgers like Impossible Burgers to 3D printing buildings like Mighty Buildings to building microbots to go up your spine and do surgery in your brain to uh, Mach 5 air travel, London to New York in 90 minutes. It just blows my mind 
a hundred of these radical things, robotic furniture. Uh, it's just pretty amazing. It is. It is super amazing. And, and really exciting. You know, at age 64, this is why I work 80 hours a week. I can't find anything more fun to do. That's extremely inspiring. Wow. And if I can help an entrepreneur increase their probability of success, that's why I scarred my time out and make it available only to entrepreneurs. That's awesome. And and it shows when it, when you look at your portfolio. So looking at the topics, um, these the industries that your that, that your portfolio companies are disrupting, um, one of those is biotechnology, and then another one is neural interfaces, uh, or at least like neuroscience, mm-hmm. right? Um, the human body in general. So that that leads me to think like it leads me to see a trend here of like we have engineered computing and now we're engineering the building blocks of matter and reality mm-hmm. and it makes me think like we're starting to engineer what it means to be human fundamentally mm-hmm. right so then where should we go with this power what should we end up becoming yeah what do you foresee you know this is a very very important question you uh, all harari in his book 21st 21 Lessons for the 21st Century actually talks about this. Sort of what it, what does it mean? I don't think this is a question for technologists to decide alone. Now, of course, Putin is interested in this topic in engineering better humans for Russia. So I do think that'll happen. Uh, there's efforts in China, as you know, the HIV resistance CRISPR treatment potentially enhances intelligence also. Very touchy grounds. You know, reducing the risk of getting Alzheimer's, most people will agree on. Using it to enhance intelligence, not everybody will agree on. And we will get a disparate set of views. So these are social questions. I think technology should be for the benefit of humanity. And society should decide those, uh, should arrive at a consensus. I think this is the place where logic alone doesn't work. Emotions matter a lot on what we as a society want to be. I have very little doubt that whether we are talking about AI or biotechnology, CRISPR-like technologies uh, to compute with biology, all those are very feasible. Synthetic biology, designing new proteins, designing new amino acids that aren't don't exist in nature, all those are now doable and doable at a small scale where you can do it at home in your basement lab. Yeah. Right? You can re- CRISPR yourself, your own body, and that kind of hacking is going on. First, I think individuals should be allowed to make choices as long as they're not harmful to the rest of society. But the social question is a societal question that we need to have a different dialogue. My problem is much of that dialogue happens either among technologists in technical circles, or among, I'll call them the humanists, but I sort of agree, people who don't really understand the technology have very naive views of it, and then have discussions among themselves, and they're very naive. So the right forum is very important. For example, I, I actually don't think Nick Borstrom is qualified to talk about AI. I found his book uh, sort of ridiculous. Hmm. He's so naive about it, yet he becomes the philosopher who wants to talk about AI. Hmm. He's not qualified to do it. Hmm. But there are people who care about our humanity and want to meld it with a consensus choice in society, not a singular choice. No one person should make that decision or one company. Yeah, yeah. Now, we could talk for hours just on this stuff. We could, we could. but our time is limited. But I do want to say about Bostrom um, on on Rogan on Rogan's podcast. It was the most cringeworthy um, thing watching him explain um, these possibilities of how things could go wrong. And I think I do agree with you. It took me a while. Like I, I read his book like a year. Ago. Now people won't challenge him. I'm happy to challenge yeah, him. That'd be a great conversation. Right? He, he's so naive. It's almost stupidity. Yet he gets the right forum. 
gets the right forum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in general, like even Elon, who I respect, I mean, he talks about AI apocalypse. Like I, I, I almost want to like, if I meet Elon, like, do you know what gradient descent is? Like, yes. Um, how that works. Yeah. <laughs> but huh. it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things, right. Um, technical knowledge. There's a disparity. Look, here's, uh, I think the one thing I take away from Elon's statements uh, I don't worry about the things he worries about, but I do think safety in AI and safety in biotechnology and safety in nuclear technology are really important topics, and we can't just ignore them. So I'm very, very proud. We are one of the largest large investors in open AI. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very proud of the fact that safety is a top-level important group at open AI. Yes. And we should have that in biotechnology. We should have, have had it in nuclear and address these issues. Absolutely. The Nick Bostrom kind of silliness results in what happened with nuclear as a powerful technology, which is we took the single largest weapon we had in fighting climate change and killed it. And that is the naive environmental discussion, right? Naive environmentalists cause more damage on climate change than any other group by fighting nuclear. And every nuclear plant we didn't build, we built a coal plant instead. That's what happened over the last 40 years. And that's what's happening in India and China today. More coal plants being built that could have been nuclear. That's not to say they're not doing solar and wind and other things. I'm very, very passionate about climate, but it bothers me that this naive level of discussion, the Bostrom-like discussion in the environment, killed the most powerful tool we had to save the planet from climate change. And it might happen with AI. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I this agree. part's going to be controversial. Look, every power, but I'm never afraid to be controversial. Uh, Every powerful technology can be used for good or bad. And we have to recognize that, every powerful technology. And so we have to make sure that the cons known consequences and the unintended consequences are adjusted for and adapted to, especially as we discover the unintended consequences. But doesn't we mean we lose or kill the goose that laid the golden egg? in the process. Really, really important for society. Yes, and this whole safety concern, to me, it, it seems, it, it almost seems misplaced because I, I feel like what we should be worried about is the corporation themselves, mm -hmm. not the matrix operations that are happening on computing chips. Yeah. It's the desires and the values of Zuckerbergs and those people, yeah. you know. Um, but you're right, it is a tool that could be used for good and evil. Uh, which makes total sense to me. Um, and as somebody who started Sun, you definitely have something valuable to, to say in that regard. Uh, speaking of Sun, um, you managed to get Eric Schmidt at the time to work for Sun, which is just so cool to, I mean, think about. How did you manage to become such a good mm, salesman? Was it innate? Well, Were you always like that? Since well, so there's two parts to it, right? One is how do you sell? And the second part is, what do you enjoy? And we just had the Sun reunion last Saturday night. Many years after Sun was sold, a thousand people showed up to a reunion. A thousand people, they flew in from all over the world for the Sun reunion. That's it was a very fun event last Saturday night. Wow. Um, it was super cool. And we, Eric Schmidt showed up, and Carol Bartz was there, who was CEO of Yahoo, because she was an early Sun employee. Of course, Andy and Bill both, Bill flew in from Florida. Andy was there. Uh, just so many people were there. Right? And did you host it? Uh, actually, a group organized it. The four founders helped with it, uh, with the financing, but... It was great to see everybody together. Um, and I was talking about the fact that in the first 20 people, there's probably 
more billion dollar type successful startups launched by those people. Of course, Eric Schmidt was CEO of Google, Carol was CEO of Yahoo. Um, there was so many startups and I could probably name 20 things that the first 20 people started that were hugely successful. And the question is why? It's because the quality of people we assembled. And that, and, and you know, people talk about the PayPal mafia. PayPal did a great job of assembling awesome people mm-hmm. that then went on to do lots of interesting things, where, whether it was Keith Raboy or Reed Hoffman or Elon Musk or, you know, when you get these collections of people, they attract other great people and you get the sort of this sucking whirlpool that attracts everybody great. Um, At Sun, it happened because I enjoy great people. I enjoy learning from people. And so anybody great I could hire, whether I needed their background or not, we hired. You talked about NFS, we hired a guy out of Xerox Park, Rick Cattell who was a database guy. And people said, why are you hiring a database guy? I said, I'm not hiring a database guy. I'm hiring a smart guy Mm. who might help us with distributed file systems. Because the difference between a database and a file system is not, it's semantic. The idea of intelligent data that we can work on uh, for practical applications, it's the same idea. And so you hire as many great people as you can, independent of whether you need their skill or not. Mm. Right? And that was what Sun did very early and created a PayPal mafia. I say the Sun mafia was at least as powerful, not if not more powerful, over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and there's very few startups like that that have like the Sun mafia or the PayPal mafia that went on to make perceptible differences. Uh, uh, in uh, in the world. Um, so that was that. The question of skills, uh, selling skills that you asked, it's a very interesting question. I never sell something I'm not passionate about. So in my brutal honesty, I sometimes got in trouble because somebody called me and said, what do you think of this startup? And I'd say, this is what I worry about because I can't sell something I don't believe in. Right. The flip side of it, if I, if I believe something in my core, I, I just don't stop selling. I'm like, I'm, it's almost like a religious conversion of somebody. Right. Like, if you believe, then you sell it as if you're a messiah. Yeah. Right? And you have the confidence and it's much more authentic than if you're trying to sell something you don't believe in. So I only sell things I believe in. I'm brutally honest, even with other investors, and I'll sometimes say, hey, you might be investing in that company, it's sort of shitty. Uh, and, and it gets me in trouble a lot. But, uh, so selling is, I think about being authentic, and you, authenticity comes from believing what you're selling and not selling what you don't believe. Yeah, that's a great quote right there. Uh, yeah, you clearly had the passion for it. and. You were authentic about it. So um, I know you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and you are yourself an entrepreneur. There's a lot of entrepreneurs or wanting or budding or wanting to be entrepreneurs who listen to this channel. Um, uh, and I'm curious um, if you have any advice in terms of what's one industry that you think uh, could is ripe for disruption in 2019? I think it's everything. Okay. Uh, let me explain this. Till about 10 years ago, technology entrepreneurship, which is what I know, I don't know other entrepreneurship, was about technology businesses. Yeah, it was about the internet, mobile, and enterprise soft applications, and stuff like that. And we had lots of successful startups, but it was about technology. Since about 10 years ago, technology entrepreneurship is about every other industry. Airbnb is changing the hotel business. Uber is changing transportation. Uber and Lyft. Um, Like, I'm hard-pressed to think of an area that isn't up for 
radical innovation driven by technology breakthroughs. Um, so about 18 months ago, I published a document called Reinventing Societal Infrastructure with Technology. It was super long. I, I was like, it was 50 pages, but I literally said what parts of, you know, when you get to my age, when most people are retiring, I said, what do I want to work on the next 20 years? And I literally took the time, it took me months and months, maybe over a year, to say, what part of GDP can I not invent? And really non-governmental GDP, because I didn't look at government. Uh, uh, what can't you reinvent with technology where the economic advantage from technical approaches would be large enough, like hundreds of percent, not 5% or 10%. Hmm. So, uh, you know, people forget to s differentiate incremental innovations. If, this, if you want to make this building 5 or 10% more energy efficient, that's incremental. If you want to have the energy go 100% or 1,000% further, that's large innovation, in my view. And I couldn't come up with one area of, of GDP that couldn't be reinvented by technology, and that was the 50-page document. About four years ago, I asked the same question in medicine, and I wrote a 100-page document called... Uh, 20% doctor included. How would I reinvent medicine, healthcare, uh, uh, physician resources for the planet uh, from scratch? And I wrote this 100-page fully referenced document to say, hey, this is worth ex getting excited about. It's worth reinventing. So my son's now has a startup to make primary care all over the world free for everyone. Like, wow. that's ambitious. That is ambitious. And I think it'll happen in less than 10 years. Mm. These large things are absolutely worth working on. If you'd asked anybody four years ago, hey, can we reinvent food? They would have said no. The Impossible Burger, we invested eight or nine years ago. It's completely changing what it means to be a plant protein. Everybody has a different view. So what Elon Musk did for electric cars, he didn't really invent a, a battery or a better motor. Or, he synthesized, and I say instigated the idea the world should go to electric cars. When Volkswagen and GM weren't thinking about it, now they all have it on their roadmap aggressively. So he instigated the chain to electric cars without really inventing huge things. Pat Brown? changed the notion of animal husbandry on the planet forever. Whether he's successful or others are successful because 100 people are following him, it doesn't matter. He instigated a large part of climate change, 16% of global emissions, and about a third or more of the planet's land area dedicated to just animal husbandry can all be saved. 90% reduction in land use because of the impossible burger. Now, if my son can instigate changing, eliminating the need of primary care and making it free, that'd be awesome. So we need only a few, a few dozen entrepreneurs in a few dozen critical areas for society to make this happen. If we could 3D print buildings, We'd cut the amount of building in materials we use in half. One of the large climate change tools we need. Uh, and we could make them half the price. The production cost would be so much lower and become accessible. So these are very large problems with very exciting possibilities. I get overly excited. Uh, we already talked about an AI tutor that I want to do as a nonprofit. Any of your uh, viewers want to work on that? That's me. Okay. Uh, signed up. I'm signed up. Um, and, and I'd fund it as fully as a nonprofit to just make this happen because the world needs it. That's and the world needs free primary care. Yeah. Uh, and, and so 
I'm very bullish about where we can go with technology if we use it with appropriate caution and with this kind of safety and security and social considerations that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Very exciting. It's, this is what motivates me every day. Yeah. Um, speaking about that 3D printed house um, startup that you've invested in, um, sometimes I think about like in the future, 10 or 20 years from now, I think, and this, this is a controversial opinion, but I think lots of young people are going to start moving to Montana and these like areas that are where nobody lives because of self-driving cars, because of virtual reality and because of easily buildable cities. Yeah. What do you think about that idea? It's just a prediction. I, look, I think cities have real value to society because community gets created around cities. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Community is a very important part of society. And yes, there's good online communities. And 10 years ago, if you were gay or lesbian or something, it was hard to find that community and be open about it except online. But physical communities are just as important, whether it's kids playing in a playground or getting a group that cares about social equality or better housing. Uh, community is important, and I actually think much of the space we have will be reused for community functions. When you don't need, e uh, when e-commerce does the, the, all the inventorying of goods, uh, when robotics kitchen do the restaurant part, all that space, I think, would be well used for community functions whether it's a yoga class together or an exercise class together or a book club or a community is important. Yes. And in, in fact, it's ultimately what we should aspire to. I totally agree. That's the most human thing yeah. we can do. That's what's really human about us. It is. I include dogs and animals in this, in my version of community. Yeah. Uh, because I care. Yes. I'm about, I'm about to get a dog in a few days, finally, so that, that'll be cool. Also, have you, have you tried VR? I'm just curious. I've tried VR. Uh, I think it's a little too artificial a world for me personally. Yeah. I can see the commercial applications of AR. There's plenty of good ones. I think there's great gaming applications for VR, um, and it's a big market now. Yeah. But personally, I like real world I, when I'm sitting with the family, I don't want a, a pair of goggles on. Yeah. Well, for someone like me, like a single guy who's like just working all day, it's nice to have two hours to like communicate with people. Yeah. There are these like playrooms. It is a val valuable community. It's yeah. the same idea. Yeah. And we have to have a diversity of community types. For sure. So um, on the on the uh, right here, I finish reading Zero to One by Peter Thiel. So I want to ask you a question that it's, it's just stuck out to me from the entire book that Thiel asks everybody that he hires, but this is just a generally a good question. What is one belief that you have that is contrary uh, to popular belief? One thing that you think is true um, that most people don't. Uh, there's quite a few of these radical things. First, I do think within 10 years, AGI, artificial general intelligence is within reach. And if we get it, or say when we get it, whether it's in five years or 50 years, and I think it's closer to 10 than 50, the fundamental structure in society of the need to work to earn a living will go away. Think about how radical this is. People will work because they want to work, because they want to find meaning in life, not because they need to work. Most people, when they talk about job creation, I'm talking about job elimination of all the shitty jobs. Mm -hmm. If you had to sit on an assembly line sorting eggs by grade A, grade A, and grade AAA for eight hours a day, 300 days a year, for 20 years, it's a horrible job. Horrible. And you see these assembly lines. Uh, there's so many jobs like that that are just shitty jobs. People do because they need to do as opposed to because they want to do it. Now, if somebody wants to do exporting as a career, that's a great job. If you want to be on America's Got Talent, that's a great job. If you want to be an artist and that's what, or a musician, great. But 
Or if you want to be a scientific researcher, I love learning. Like I'll work on it every hour I can find. Just learn something new. I'm literally addicted to learning. Is uh, like at a level that is almost like that's what uh, literally uh, it it just pumps my brain up to learn one new idea, one new concept, one new model I put together in my head, right? Um, people will do what they want to work on, what they want to work on, not what they need to work on just to make a living. And that will be the ultimate freedom for humanity. And we will not want to create more jobs. We'll want to create valuable opportunities for learning, valuable opportunities for community, and valuable opportunities for meditation and happiness. I look forward to that world. Um, so I have one more question for you, um, and that is your view on the future of the U.S. versus, say, China when it comes to technological innovation in about 30 years or so. Do you think the U.S. will continue to maintain its lead, or do you think the question is irrelevant? I don't, I don't think it's an irrelevant question. I do think today, in for the next decade or two, we are literally going to see a war of values. I think there's one side is Western values, and there's a different set of values as practiced today in China and possibly in Russia, right? And so these war of values, I absolutely personally hope Western values win uh, and, and get enhanced with additional values, like I think of family values in India, and that's also true of China, by the way. That's right. Uh, very strong family values and community values. Uh, so we do, I do think we'll see a battle um, whoever wins AGI will have a strong say in w what wins. Um, uh, which society wins, it's very hard to tell. Uh, Kai Fu Lee would say China will win. Right. I think there's huge resiliency in Western values and Western approaches which are less organized, less orchestrated, more chaotic, and hence more creative and innovative. Hmm. Right? Uh, it's hard to say. I'm more optimistic about the Western values winning, but we have to be cautious. And we want, if you're on our team, yeah. we want Western values to win. Now, I'm also hopeful in 50 years when China is very well off, they will adapt values that value humanity and individualism at its core, which is what Western values are about. Like freedom of speech. Right? Freedom of speech being one, being allowed to be different mm. is another. That's true. Um, you, you know, um, being able to speak your mind about the government or take a different point of view. Um, very advanced societies after they get past basic human needs will focus on that. And maybe they'll, we'll all get to the same place in common values globally and get different enough where I can move to China and live there if I agree with those values or want to live in that uh, situation. Uh, it'll, it'll all be fun. Uh, having said that, uh, and you talked about Elon Musk talking about AI going rogue. I wrote a blog about two years ago called AI Scary for the Right Reasons. So as I said, every powerful technology has positive and negative consequences. With or without AGI, AI can be used as a tool to win these wars, this war of values. And I think cyber warfare will be hugely driven by AI. So if you were asked me, what am I worried about with AI? It's not AI go, going rogue and killing humanity. I think that's relatively easy to protect against if we are careful. 
Cyber AI warfare is a much harder and more important question that I don't believe we are paying enough attention to. That's what I would worry in AI on. Cyber warfare with AI. Hmm. This was my blog from two years ago. Yeah, I got to read that one. You have a lot of writings. Um, Yeah, that's a a great point. We need to be be more focused on what the actual threat is rather than the general just AI is evil, period. Um, Definitely a lot to think about. Um, So with that, I'd love to end the podcast. Vinod, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Really honor uh, your time for being here. Great. Uh, It's fun to be here. It's fun to talk about these things. But more importantly, I hope there's a few people in your audience who get motivated enough to be entrepreneurs that really want to change, take on some large problem like electric cars or plant proteins or building construction. One of the problems in my document on reinventing societal infrastructure with technology, if I can motivate a few people out of an hour like this, it's well worth my time. Absolutely. Guys, check out all the links in the video description. They're going to be a Vinod's website, his videos. Um, Cool. Thanks, Vinod. Thank you.